Reflections on the Bible Creation, Fall, and Sacrifice by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 In the story we're told that we're made in God's image and the serpent says, well, we must we must vie with God, assert ourselves, connive, plot. And fundamentally, I guess we have to finally decide whether or not we're going to be God or know God. Maybe that's what we should do. When we, we should put our children on our knees when they're about four and we should say to them, look, you got a choice. You can either try to be God, you'll never, it'll never work, you'll never do it, you'll wear yourself out and you'll make you and your, everybody that knows you miserable, or you can try to know God. And you can't do them both. And for us creatures, it would be better to know God than to be God, even if we could be God. <laughs> even if we could do it, it would be better not to, because we're creatures and it would be better to know God than to be God. I want to turn to Cain and Abel quickly. More quickly than I should, really. You know, God said, if you eat of the tree, you're going to die. So, my gosh, they ate of the tree. So we say, what? Wait, hold on now. There's going to be a death. Because is it true they're going to die? Well, yeah. And they, Adam and Eve die, no doubt. They die. But uh, God had said, as soon as you eat of the fruit of that tree, you shall die. That day, you shall die. And they didn't die that day. Or at least they didn't physically die that day. Something else happened. So we're invited to see another kind of death. But on the other hand, what is the next real death, human death, we see? Well, as I've said in the past, the first death in the Bible is a murder. That's pretty amazing. They give birth to Cain, the firstborn. They give birth to Abel. Cain and Abel offer sacrifices. And we have the Bible's first reference to sacrifice, and next week I'll come back to this and deal with it uh, in, uh, in more detail. Abel offers a blood sacrifice. Abel is a shepherd. He has flocks. He offers one of uh, a firstborn of his flock. Firstborn is a sacrificial term which has, which has its roots in human sacrifice. And I'll talk about that next week. But he offers the firstborn of his flock, an animal bloodletting sacrifice, Cain is a tiller of soil. He offers the fruit of his, uh, of his harvest, the first fruits of his harvest. Yahweh is pleased by the offering of the blood sacrifice and is not pleased by the offering of the non-blood sacrifice. And Cain immediately begins to be ill-disposed, the Bible says. Yahweh asked Cain, why are you angry and downcast? And he should have said, "Why? who are you angry with? No, he shouldn't have said it because God should always speak good English. He should have said, with whom are you angry? <laughs> as, as Garrison Keillor says, if English was good enough for Jesus and the apostles, it's good enough for me. Uh, but he's angry and downcast. With whom? Does he throw spitballs at God? No. He's angry and downcast with his brother. Why? Because his brother's offering was pleasing to God. 
The rivalry, you see, is what's underneath this. Why are they offering sacrifices? They're offering sacrifices in order to prevent what happened when Cain's sacrifice failed, namely rivalry. And I'll come back to that next week. Sacrifice has to do with pr avoiding precisely this event. And in this case, we have a situation where sacrifice failed, and the result was a mimetic rivalry which ends in murder. But more on that next week. The point uh, here is that, again, you have the Bible going against itself. The movement, the journey from a religion that re relies on blood sacrifice to a religion that does not is what the biblical text is all about. The Bible is a journey from blood sacrifice, and in the first instance, human sacrifice, to a religion without that. And so you could say, history is on the side of Cain. Some people have said that. History is on the side of Cain, not because he's a tiller of, uh, of the soil and therefore uh, agricultural person and therefore more civilized than not and, you know, comes after the, the uh, nomadic life of the herdsman and so on, not because of that, but for, because of the nature of the sacrifice. The religion based on blood sacrifice is a more primitive form than a religion based on non-blood sacrifice. So you could say, what's going on here? The Bible seems to be going in the direction of Cain, but it's punishing Cain. Why? It's puni I would say this, is, this, is, this would be my midrash on this story. And it's a very sobering one. It is that you can't go too quickly. The, the world is created, the biblical world is created first day one, day two, day three. It's a progressive thing. The paraclete moves slowly as we can accommodate the insight and the breakthroughs and the breaking, breaking down of our institutions. It's a slow process. And if you try to leap ahead too quickly, you'll un unleash catastrophe. And that's why I think about these Dostoevsky figures who, have, who, who, are, who unfortunately have become historical figures in our day, who have these utopian visions, you know. We're going to do away with all of this. We're going to get rid of all of this stuff. We're going to live in a, in a perfect, you know, a worker's paradise, and pretty soon they're just slaughtering people. In other words, you go too quickly. If you break down these sacrificial institutions too quickly, you'll become murderers. God's displeasure at Cain's sacrifice is part, I would say, of the narrative armature again. This is my interpretation. It's a way of explaining that at this point in human history, it was necessary that blood sacrifices be offered, that only something with the cathartic power of blood sacrifice was capable of preventing human violence. And... Because when it didn't work, when Cain tried to, to do something more progressive, he ended up doing something regressive. He got, too, he got out ahead of the curve too much. And this is... Now, this doesn't mean... This should never, ever, ever be used as a way of justifying clinging to sacrificial uh, gestures which have become morally troubling to us. As soon as they're morally troubling, we have to move beyond them. 
So that's, it's very important. That's the paraclete at work, I think. When the paraclete awakens a moral revulsion towards these things, then absolutely we have to find an alternative to them. But on the other hand, we have to understand, well, for instance, for instance, if we looked out over the world with perfect vision, laser-like vision, and we could see all the sacrificial uh, institutions and structures in our world, and we say, oh, obviously we're trying to do away with all these sacrificial structures, that's what the biblical thing is all about, that's what Western civilization is all about, that's basically what we're out to do in the world. That's what history is doing. It's breaking down these sacrificial institutions. Therefore, I have this magic wand which will eliminate them all instantly and I eliminate them all instantly, we would fall into total chaos. We would be murdering each other right and left. So much of the apparatus on which civilized society now rests has sacrificial uh, elements in it. We have to tame those sacrificial regimes and make them as as forgiving and as generous and as and as uh, um, morally uh, tolerable as we can. Cain became a murderer because he renounced the sacrificial resources too quickly before he was able to live without them. Paul, Paul will say in one at one time all of these structures are being destroyed. The powers and principalities are being destroyed. And at another time, he will say, you must, you must be deferential when in the presence of these powers and principalities. Christ, the risen Christ is ultimately going to destroy them all. But they have not all been destroyed, and it's not your business to do so. It's only your business to renounce those that have become morally problematic to you. And if they haven't, then they are serving a purpose in our world. That's right, and obey the law. That's right. Now I want to I want to wrap up because it's time to wrap up, and I want to go back to the to the problem represented by the serpent. Picture, if you will, the structural arrangement, which is here's the tree marked off in the garden, forbidden tree, and here's the serpent, and here's Eve, and just behind Eve is Adam. And so the serpent comes and not only looks at the tree, but causes Eve to look desirously at the tree. And that awakens something in Eve. She eats of the tree, gives it to Adam, and so on. The whole process begins. And the question is, how do we get out of this? That's the problem of mimetic desire and all of the stuff that it brings into the world. And so the question is, how do we renounce mimetic desire? It's just like the question. It's, it, in fact, it's not only structurally related, but in a more fundamental sense is related to the question of sacrifice. As I said earlier, epithumia, the root word in epithumia, thumos, means sacrifice. Epithumia means desire. Thumos, which is its, its etymological root, means sacrifice. Desire and sacrifice are related. So, just as I was saying, we move out of sacrifice sacrificially. How do we move out of mimetic desire? And the answer is by mimetic desire. And so I would say what we should do is juxtapose a scene. On one hand, we have the serpent, the tree, Eve, and Adam. And on the other hand, the scene I would juxtapose 
is the one that Dante gives us at the top of the Purgatorial Mountain. At the top of the Purgatorial Mountain, Christ comes out, Christ is manifested in this poem, in this pageant, as the griffin, the, the figure that is part lion, part eagle. And the griffin represents for Dante the two natures of Christ, the divine and human nature of Christ. And so the griffin stands there as Christ in Dante's poem. And Dante is led by the four cardinal virtues, justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude, to the griffin. And they say to, and this is what Dante says, they led me to the griffin, behind him Beatrice waited, and when I stood at the griffin's breast, they said in unison, this is the, these are the four virtues, they said, look deep, look well, however your eyes may smart, we have led you now before those emeralds from which love shot his arrows through your heart. In other words, the transfigured Beatrice. The, the, in, you could almost say the risen Beatrice. The, the, the transfiguration of the Beatrice he had known uh, in his youth. Well, what do they do? They say to him, look there. They are performing the same function for Dante that the serpent performed for Eve in the garden. They're directing his attention, his desire toward Beatrice. And what does he see? Dante says, A thousand burning passions, every passions, epithumia, every one hotter than any flame, held my eyes fixed on the lucent eyes she held fixed on the griffin. So she's not looking at him, she's looking at Christ. And Dante says, Like sunlight in the glass, the twofold creature shone from the deep reflection in her eyes. So he looked into her eyes and he saw the reflection as in a mirror of Christ. And I think that's exactly it. How do we get out of this mess? The same way we got in. We see, we look, and we see another whose desire is not uh, horizontal, so to speak, whose whose glance, whose desirous glance is looking at something above the horizon. And we see somebody like that and we think, wait a minute, that is pretty... It, we, it's, it feels like somebody's calling us home. You go about your everyday life and all of the little mimetic entanglements, you know, that we're all involved in, they go on and how am I doing and look at this and da-da-da-da-da. And every once in a while you come upon somebody and you notice... That, they, that their glance is, a, is a, above the horizon line. They seem to be going through life looking at something else. And when, and when you notice that, it's like being called home. You think, oh, they're on to something. And then you notice, if you find out more about them, like you read the life of Teresa of Avila, and you find out how, much, how she was influenced by and was an influence on John of the Cross, and you see that, my goodness, this thing is the communion of saints, isn't it? We do it for each other, don't we? <laughs> we, ca we catch each other in this moment when we're our glance, when we're looking at Christ, so to speak, to use the Dantean metaphor. And at that moment, we start to come up out of this soup that we're in. And so I'm not, I don't, I'm not doing this justice, but I think there's something quite symmetrical with the Genesis story of the fall 
in Dante's story of redemption. Both have to do with mimetic desire. And we, have to, we can't get out of this except the same way we got in it. And I want to add to that something which I think is uniquely modern, so much so that I don't know how to think about it. If it were more biblical, I think I would understand it better, but I don't understand it quite. But I want to share it with you anyway. I share a lot of things with you I don't quite understand. And I thought of it when I was thinking about the serpent and Eve and Adam falling because of mimetic desire and Dante and the, and, and, the, and the virtues and Beatrice and the griffin coming up out of that fallen state on the basis of mimetic desire. I thought of that scene in Virginia Woolf's novel, The Wave, where they're sitting in chapel. Their heads, by the way, the, this is the boys in chapel. Their heads are turned up. They're looking at the headmaster reading from the Bible. Neville's head, of course, immediately turns down, and so does Bernard. Bernard turns down because he takes notes. He writes a few phrases he's going to use in a story later on. So he's, his head looks down. Neville's head looks down and looks over. And Neville looks over to Percival. So it loses its transcendence, and he looks to Percival, and he says, his blue and oddly inexpressive eyes are fixed with pagan indifference upon the pillar opposite. He sees nothing. He hears nothing. He is remote from us all in a pagan universe. But, Neville says, but look. Now this is very important. The serpent said to Eve, look, so to speak. The virtue said to Dante, look. And Neville says, look. And everything depends on what we look at. And Neville wants to look at this. Not Dante is bidden to look at someone in whose eyes he sees reflected Christ. Neville invites us to look at someone who has blue and oddly inexpressive eyes fixed with pagan indifference on the pillar opposite. He sees nothing. And I thought, it reminded me of, you know, or, Little Orphan Annie's eyes in the newspaper thing? It did just these little circles. I don't know what to make of that. But I think it's related to deconstruction. <laughs> I think it's related to the modern intellectual disease. And I, I'm not sure exactly how. We don't want to be caught looking at one whose eyes are looking at Christ because that seems, it seems pretty passe. And on the other hand, we don't want to be caught with blood on our hand. So we don't want to just completely embrace the Adam-Eve-Cain syndrome. There's something very strange, it seems to me, and very significant and timely and symbolic about Neville choosing to become fascinated by one whose blue and oddly inexpressive eyes were fixed with pagan indifference on nothing. So of the three, I would suggest Dante's. 
I wanted to talk about Abraham today. Abraham is the father of our faith. I was reminded of the Tibetan monks. You know, the Tibetan monks do this chant where they're sounding notes on different octaves at the same time, one person. And how they do it is a great mystery, of course, but it's distinct to their chanting. And I was thinking about that because what I want to do is think about Abraham anthropologically as well as spiritually. And that's no easy feat because the the sort of mindset that you have to embrace for each of those is quite different. So I'm going to sort of move in and out of each of those mindsets as we as we talk about Abraham. I'm going to actually lead up to Abraham for at least half of the morning and then talk about Abraham. But the leading up to Abraham will be a way of trying to put Abraham in anthropological perspective and to see what Abraham represents in the biblical text and why he is the father of faith and what that means. So I will go back to last week. We talked about the, the, uh, the, the garden and the fall and the serpent, and I pointed out that the serpent introduces a desire which is not there prior to his arrival, a desire for the, for the forbidden tree, and so that the first move in the sinfulness of, of humanity, according to the biblical poetics is a is the insinuation the word insinuate means uh, comes from the word for snake it's the insinuation of mimetic desire and the result of that is a collapse of of religious transcendence that is to say god now becomes the rival the serpent says uh, if you eat of that you will become like god and that's why this this god doesn't want you to eat it and so it immediately introduces a, uh, a rivalrous situation, replaces a transcendent relationship with a rivalrous one. And the scapegoating and deflecting of responsibility and so on begin. And in the next generation, the mimetic entanglement uh, becomes more implicate. And Cain offers a sacrifice which fails. And the result of that is that he kills his brother Abel because of uh, resentment and rivalry. So in a way, you have, you have the whole picture right there in, encapsulated. But in the, the first mention, therefore, of sacrifice comes as in classical literature in the middle of things, in media res. Suddenly we have sacrifice. Cain and Abel are offering sacrifice. We have no background to this ritual. It's simply introduced as an already given, established way of being religious. And so what we have to do today is to go back behind that and find out where that comes from. And we've done this before, of course, in many other contexts. But I want to revisit those things and bring them into play and think about where Abraham fits in all of this. In Pauline anthropology, the word desire is very important. And the Greek word that Paul uses to talk about desire and all of its uh, complications is the word epithumia, and the root of that word is thumos, which means sacrifice. So at an etymological level, and so often, you know, the etymological level is where you get the first hint of the real interconnections. At the etymological level, there's already a link between desire and sacrifice, 
And it's a link that we can see in the Genesis story of the fall. It's already there. So both etymologically and uh, biblically, you have this link. It's not delineated, so we're not sure what the linkage is right away, but clearly there is some kind of a link. When sacrifice presents itself for the first time in the Bible, without any preamble, we have to say, where did this come from? What is its purpose? As you know, as I've said many times, the practice of animal sacrifice is absolutely universal. There are the the anthropology is is uh, is unequivocal that this is the standard form of religious worship in the ancient world, and so we have to say, how could that be? Religious traditions that have all these dissimilarities have this one similarity. And so we have to ask ourselves, where does it come from? What does sacrifice do? It must do something. You know, the 19th century anthropologists and even more modern ones have said, well, you see, it's myth, really. You begin with myth, and the myth says that the world was born from the dismembered uh, body of 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 a monster. So uh, these cultures reenact their myth ritually and therefore uh, perform sacrifices, which means that the, the original impulse for sacrifice came out of a fertile imagination. Very few people believe that anymore. The, the truth is it's the other way around. The ritual came first. The ritual didn't come first. An event came first, which is reenacted in the ritual, and the myth simply tells the story according to the to the point of view of the, of the people who sacrifice, just as the gospel tells the point of view, tells the story from the point of view of the victim. So if we look at Cain and Abel and we say, why are they sacrificing? The answer is presented, encrypted slightly, in the story. Blood sacrifice is the ancient world's way of warding off exactly what happened when in the Cain and Abel story, Cain's sacrifice failed. In other words, when, when the story says Yahweh was displeased with Cain's sacrifice, that means that's a failed sacrifice. What happened as a result of the failed sacrifice was fratricide, which is a, which is a, a, a marker for social disintegration, for, uh, for a breakdown of, of the social arrangements and a breakdown into violence. So fratricide is civil war, chaos, all the other things. So why do we have sacrifice? Why does the ancient world have sacrifice? To prevent what happened in the Cain and Abel story. Because when the sacrifice failed, that's what happened. The other thing to notice, which I tried to point out last week, is that the biblical thrust moves from the kind of sacrifice Abel offered to the kind of sacrifice that Cain offered. In other words... As a number of people have said, history is on Cain's side. It appears that history is on Cain's side because the biblical movement is always away from from blood sacrifice, away from violent forms of sacrifice. And Cain was offering the fruit of his harvest, not not a, uh, a a slain animal. So what would be the moral of the story? The moral, as I tried to point out last week, is that if you move too quickly, you have, you, you, you discover not progress, but regress. If you move too quickly out of the sacrificial uh, arrangements, you, f- you throw yourself into a, a, a social and cultural crisis, 
the climax of which is a, is a more primitive, more violent, more destructive form of sacrifice. There, I'm sorry to say to you, there are lots of modern examples of that. The sort of paradigmatic one, of course, is, the, is Robespierre and the Jacobins in the French Revolution, who were, if you will, rejecting a, a set of sacrificial arrangements and sacrificial attitudes and trying to do it wholesale, walking away from them, getting rid of religion and so on. And the result was the, the, uh, the guillotine and that, that kept clacking away and cutting off heads and so on and so forth. So the renunciation of sacrifice can result in murder. Before I leave the Jacobins, let me point out that the name Jacobin <coughs> came from the Dominican convent on Rue Saint-Jacques in Paris where the, the revolutionaries held their first meeting. And that should not go without notice, nor should we forget the fact that the most prominent of these revolutionaries were Jesuit trained. And I take that to mean not that, that religion was as perverse as they claimed it to be, but that they were really children of Abraham, that, that, the, that the determination to renounce existing morally troubling forms of sacrificial violence is a biblical determination, even when it scapegoats the Bible and, and the biblical tradition. It is still born of a biblical sensibility. So even though they became, in the course of French history, children of Cain, they started out as children of Abraham. Well, Jeremiah has a hint of that too, of course, in this passage that I quote periodically from the second chapter of Jeremiah, where he says to his people, it is long ago now since you broke your yoke, burst your bonds, and said, I will not serve. Yet on every high hill and under every spreading tree you have lain down like a harlot. And by the way, we know from other passages, which some of which I'll quote to you in a few minutes, that when Jeremiah talks about uh, these uh, high hills, these cults that were on the, the high place cults, he's talking about cults that periodically in moments of social crisis reverted to human sacrifice. So he's pointing out exactly the Cain phenomenon. If you renounce it and move away from it too quickly, uh, you will throw yourself into a social crisis which will dump you back into a sacrificial episode that's much uh, cruder and more violent than the one you renounced. So, are we trapped in a sacrificial universe? Is sacrifice the tar baby that we cannot uh, extricate ourselves from? The answer, of course, is absolutely not. But we have to be careful because, you know, Nietzsche saw the problem of renouncing sacrifice and he said we simply can't do it because without sacrifice, culture would fall apart. To see that moving out of the sacrificial universe is a complicated and nuanced endeavor is one thing, but to throw one's hands uh, in the air and, and simply reinforce that universe is something altogether different. You know, Jesus says in John's Gospel, you, you simply aren't able to uh, understand or live up to the full revelation right now. And so the paraclete will come and will slowly tutor you 
and not just intellectually, but but morally and and uh, psychologically and socially, so that you're able more and more not only to know the truth but to live in its light. Does that mean that we must tolerate forms of sacrificial violence, which we know to be morally unacceptable? And this is where Nietzsche comes in. Nietzsche says, yes, we, we must do that. Even though we know they're morally unacceptable, we have to have the determination, the steely determination to override that moral objection and to perform these sacrifices anyway. And I think that's a perverse and, and faithless reading of the situation. I would say that the message of the paraclete through history is that we are only obliged to repudiate those forms of sacrifice that have become morally troubling to us. And my faith is, and I think it's a faith borne out by history, my faith is that the fact that they have become morally troubling is in itself an indication that it, that it is at least theoretically possible for us to renounce them without throwing ourselves into an even greater sacrificial crisis, which is to say that we're at least theoretically capable of reforming our, our lives in ways that make the sacrificial structures that have become morally troubling unnecessary. It's extremely interesting to me and I think significant that the Bible says two things. One is that we, biblical people, are children of Abraham. We are children of Abraham. We have to figure out what that means. And the other thing it says is that the biblical God is the God of Abraham. The biblical God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Abraham is the beginning. So this is quite remarkable. So much focus is on Abraham. Uh, what, what does Abraham represent? We have to understand what Abraham represents. If we're going to try to be children of Abraham, what does he represent? Abraham is the one that begins to break free of the sacrificial system. And that's what and so if we're children of Abraham, that's that's what we have to be about. And Abraham is the one who in breaking free of the sacrificial system reveals the first faint but reliable profile of the real biblical God. What does Abraham represent? What did Abraham do? Well, he did many things, but what did he what was his quintessential act? And I say his quintessential act occurred at the sacrifice of Isaac, which turned out not to be a sacrifice. So if we're children of Abraham, we, we, we're children of the man who presided over that enormous transformation in human anthropology. There may or may not have been a, a historical Abraham. Uh, he may or may not have uh, almost sacrificed his son. We simply accept the story. It's the biblical story. The point is that for the Bible, it's absolutely central. And I think when the Bible says we're children of Abraham, it, it, it is in light of that event that we have to appreciate that idea. Before going back into a biblical prehistory, so to speak, let me just quote a passage in the, at, in the beginning of Luke's Gospel. It goes like this. And when the day came for them to be purified as laid down by the law of Moses, they took Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, observing 
what stands written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male must be consecrated to the Lord. Also, to, they went up to offer sacrifice in accordance with what is said in the law of the Lord, quote, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And in Leviticus, it says that if you can't afford a, a lamb or a goat, if you're too poor for that, you should offer up a, a, a pair of turtle doves. And, the, and Jesus' family were, was poor, so they offered up two turtle doves. What do we have here? Juxtaposed right there at the beginning of the gospel, a, an offering of the firstborn, and at the same moment, a sacrificial offering. Is there any link between them? Why, why is this presentation of the firstborn accompanied by this ritual slaughter of animals? Uh, is there some transference going on? Is there some shift going on? Well, right in that passage, we're, right, we're, we're on Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac. Right there at the beginning of the gospel. So we have to understand what this means. I'm going to do something now which if, it, if, it, uh, if it's a 6 on a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of interest, I would be pleased. But I feel like I want to do it anyway because it, I need to put it on the record. There's been a recent book by John Levinson called The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son. Now, Levinson is a Jewish scholar who has uh, gone into these, uh, the scriptures pretty in, in a pretty interesting way, although not quite as anthropologically as one would hope. But nevertheless, he's, he's uncovered some really important things. And he does a study of the god El in the Canaanite tradition, El. And this uh, was the, the primitive Canaanite father deity who, at a critical moment in the Canaanite myth, sacrifices, or in some variants of the, of the myth, uh, sells his son into slavery and, and redeems the situation. So this idea of sacrificing his firstborn son, his heir. So the idea of sacrificing his firstborn son has ancient Canaanite uh, uh, roots. And Levinson uh, notes that this that El is used as a name for Yahweh in the biblical text with never a flinch, never a twitch of discomfort at using that word for Yahweh. And so Levinson writes, for example, that biblical stories, even stories that tell of the origins of the people of God themselves, should reflect an old Canaanite myth will surprise only those who fail to recognize the continuities of El and Yahweh, God of Israel. In other words, there are similarities between these two deities. Whereas Baal, you know, the Canaanite god Baal, B-A-A-L, whereas Baal becomes at a certain point the great rival to Yahweh and the target of heated uh, prophetic invective, against El there is no polemic in the entire Hebrew Bible. So the, the name is just brought into the Hebrew Bible and, and associated with Yahweh. As a matter of fact, another scholar, uh, Frank Moore Cross, points to passages such as the following one in Numbers 23. How can I damn whom El has not damned? How doom when Yahweh has not doomed? So it simply uses the same as the same one. And then 
Levinson makes the point that the Molech cult, which was, a, by the way, a cult of, that engaged in human sacrifice, the Molech cult and the biblical law of the firstborn, I'm quoting Levinson, are not so sharply distinguished as most scholars have thought. However, then he, Levinson makes an important point, and this will be my last thing, and then we'll go back to the discussion. He says, To say that this L lives on in the God of Israel is to understate the import of the monotheizing and historicizing trends in biblical religion. And I would say that would be a good place to start an anthropological study, which he does not do. But anyway, then he goes on to say, but to say that he is in radical dis... He, El, the Canaanite God, is in radical discontinuity with the biblical deity is to miss the affinities of this side of El with important features of biblical law and narrative. So, like I say, that's a five or six on a scale of one to ten in terms of interest, but the point he's making is worth calling our attention to, and that is you have in the biblical tradition the pagan roots which go back to a god of sacrifice and are related to the, to the cult of Molech, which was a sacrificial cult where human children were slaughtered, uh, and so on. And so is that bad news or good news? Well, it's bad news for the human race because it shows that we are in fact fallen, but it's good news for the Bible because it shows that the Bible is, after all, the anthropological encyclopedia uh, that we need for understanding our condition. So we do have that the, the, the roots of, the, of human sacrifice in the Bible. We have to ferret them out, but the only reason for ferreting them out is not because I want to engage in, I want to look at these perverse things, but because we have to appreciate the profundity of Abraham that because we have to appreciate what it means to be children of Abraham. So I'm going to quote two things from Exodus and contrast them. There's a passage in Exodus 22 which goes as follows. You mu it's Yahweh speaking. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. And uh, in the ancient, the most ancient context, you know, this give me is, is not some polite gesture, it's a sacrificial recipe. You must give me your firstborn sons. Is that not what uh, Yahweh asked of Abraham? It's exactly the same thing. And you have it in Exodus 22. You must give me the firstborn of your son. You must do the same with your flocks and herds. The firstborn must remain with its mother for seven days. On the eighth day you must give it to me. Now, this raises an interesting question, this eighth-day business. Why did cultures tolerate human sacrifice, the sacrifice of children? They, they were not crazed people. Obviously, they did it because it, it, uh, it worked. It worked in some way. And there's a little hint of that in this text. If it was simply the idea that, oh, you know, the myth says that the... That uh, somebody got slaughtered and therefore the world was made orderly again and we better reenact the myth or something like that. If the motive was of that nature, then clearly when would the sacrifice occur? If we're going to sacrifice a, a children, I mean, it's hard to talk about this, but when would the sacrifice have occurred? It would have occurred at birth. 
That is to say, before to introduce a really modern notion, you know, before bonding and all of that. So you, you would simply snatch the child up and throw it on the altar or into the whatever the sacrificial machine was. But this text says, no, seven days with its mother and then sacrificed. What does this mean? It means that sacrifice, what, would, what occurs in that time? What occurs is the kind of emotional wrenching which makes it possible for the sacrifice to produce catharsis. And as perverse as this sounds, I, I, I'm being perverse because I'm trying to get us away from this. We still, there are plenty of sacrificial rituals in our world that provide the catharsis. And people are lining up for their M16s all over the planet because they want a little of it. You know, it's not, so when I mention this, it's not because I'm trying to, I'm t talking about some dark, hoary thing out of the past. This is very much still with us. This need for sacrificial catharsis. And, and this uncanny ability to manipulate the, the situation so as to produce precisely the right kind of catharsis. As I've said before, you know, the grade B movies, the westerns where the guy sits at the bar and, and has, the, has the guy in the black hat call his mother bad names only up to this certain moment, you know. And then the whole audience is absolutely ready for the sacrificial event. Now he's got a license to do it and he turns around like Shane and just blasts away and everybody is relieved because now we, we know that that was just what needed to happen. See, that's the... Well, it would be different from that, of course, in the situation I'm talking about here with the children, but it would be a profound psychosocial event which would, which would uh, create a cathartic uh, situation in its aftermath. Okay, pious readers of this text insert into it the substitution of the animal. They, when it says, you must give the firstborn to your sons, pious readers of the text read it from the point of view of the 6th century, 7th and 6th century B.C., when it was, when it was uh, uh, edited and made into a, a text. And the people who redacted it and edited it in the 7th and 6th century were living after or at the time of the prophets. And they, they recognized that human sacrifice was something that their whole tradition had repudiated. So they read into this text, oh, well, that means he was asking them to do what we now do uh, on the eighth day for all our children, just what they did for Jesus. We take them in, we offer them there, and we take a couple of turtle doves, and that takes care of it. See? We substitute something else. But there's no mention of substitution in this text. And in case we think that the biblical... Uh, authors are not capable of, willing, of mentioning substitutions. In another text, a few verses later, in Exodus 34, you have the following. All that issues from the womb is mine, every male, every firstborn of flock or herd. But the firstborn donkey you must redeem with an animal from your flocks. If you do not redeem it, you must break its neck. You must redeem the firstborn of your sons, and no one is to come before me empty-handed. So you have the same formula, except now redemption. And redemption simply means to, put, to offer something else in place of the designated sacrificial victim. Circumcision takes its place in that whole constellation of sacrificial gestures. All of this is a way of just sort of uh, uh, raising our interest and uh, developing a kind of anthropological acuity so that when we 
go to the story of Abraham, we'll realize how dramatic it really is. There's a story in 2 Kings which is pregnant with meaning. It's typical story of Book of Kings uh, where Israel is at war with the Moabites and Israel apparently has the Moabite uh, forces besieged <coughs> in their encampment or citadel. And the Moabite king, Mesha, is having to resort to extraordinary means in order to try to extricate himself and his troops from this, from this uh, situation. So here's what the biblical story says. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had turned against him, he mustered 700 swordsmen in the hope of breaking away out and going to the king of Aram, but he failed. So he tried to do it militarily. It didn't work. So this is an even graver crisis. See? All the king's horses and all the king's men can't do it. What are you going to do? Next verse is, Then he took his eldest son, who was to succeed him, this almost sounds like the, the, the formula for Abraham. Your only son, the son, your son, your only son, the one you love, etc. Okay. Then he took his eldest son who was to succeed him and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. And there came great wrath upon Israel and they withdrew and returned to their own land. Now, this is quite amazing because, okay, let's do, first of all, let's say, let's notice two things. The sacrifice worked. That's extraordinary. It worked. Now, how could it have worked? Is there a Canaanite God who helps, helps uh, people who worship him by offering them their children? Obviously not. How could it have worked? I don't know. But I know that in cultures faced with similar situations throughout the ancient world did this. And I'm sure they didn't do it uh, haphazardly. It was a standard recipe for how to get yourself out of, a, of an impossible military uh, situation. And I don't know enough about these things to say what uh, might have happened, but I'll offer the following uh, surmise. There's reference in this story and in the next story I'm going to read to you of a link between sacrifice and vengeance. It is entirely possible that a dramatic sacrifice taking place on the wall of the citadel, that is to say something really riveting, which involves the, the heir apparent to the to the leadership of the of the uh, a people creates no, first of all a tremendous uh, catharsis a riveting catharsis at the moment of sacrifice and then you have the moment after the sacrifice which is always the most precarious moment because you know in Billy Budd you have that moment when Billy Budd dies. And there's a moment of silence and then suddenly the, the blue jackets on the deck begin to murmur because nobody has taken control of the moment. The sacrificial priest, so to speak, has not 
has not directed the cathartic uh, uh, energy in any way, has not given it shape. And so it begins to go in all directions. It will become sacrificial again right away. So there's that. And, and also, you know, when, with the, with the uh, killing of Caesar in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, there's the moment where you don't know what's going to happen. Mark Anthony stands up and gives a speech and turns the whole thing around. Uh, or you get, or the bombing of London, what's going to happen? You get Churchill. Uh, you see, the immediate aftermath of some sacrificial event is one in which the cathartic uh, quotient, that's the term Girard uses, the cathartic quotient is there to be exploited in some way. And if you, I think of uh, the speech of Henry V in Shakespeare's Henry, if you're Henry V at that moment, my goodness, it's like Churchill, you know. You can give a speech that will, that will uh, inspire anybody within earshot to plunge themselves into this most impossible military task. And so I would say at least there's that possibility in this situation, if you want to imagine some historical uh, kernel to this story. But all of that aside, what's interesting about this story is that the author of it, who is Hebrew, who doesn't believe in the Moabite God, nevertheless acknowledges that the sacrifice worked. And that's quite extraordinary, which means that people believe that sacrifices worked, human sacrifices worked. The other story, which carries a similar message, is, of course, the story of Jephthah in the book of Judges. Jephthah was on a military campaign. This is, very, this is the biblical parallel of Agamemnon and Iphigenia. He's on a military campaign. He pledges to Yahweh that if, that if he will, uh, uh, if he will uh, uh, grant him victory over the Ammonites, that he will sacrifice the first person he sees when he returns home victorious. And he defeats the Ammonites. He returns home. And the text says, As Jephthah returned to his house in Mespah, his daughter came out from the house to meet him. She was dancing to the sound of timbrels. This was his only child. Apart from her, he had neither son nor daughter. Sounds like Abraham. You see? When he saw her, he tore his clothes and exclaimed, Oh, my daughter, what sorrow you are bringing me. Must it be you, the cause of my ill fortune? I have given a promise to Yahweh. I cannot unsay what I have said. And she answered him, My father, you have given your promise to Yahweh. Treat me as the vow you took binds you to, since Yahweh has given you vengeance on your enemies, the Ammonites. I wonder if she actually said that. <laughs> now, she might have. She might have. A lot of people who are about to become sacrificial victims join in the, in, the, in the chant that justifies the sacrifice. So that's not out of the realm of possibility that she said that. But notice what's happening here. What's important is vengeance against one's enemies and in that cause... If sacrifice have, have, uh, have, sacrifices have to be made, they have to be made. And what's striking about Jephthah is that 
he is regarded in the Bible positively. And and this is a, a little bit of... See, I, th- I feel we have to... I put down the deconstructionist a lot, you know. But there's a there's something important. The only problem with the deconstructionists is that, that they have driven the nail out of sight. The, the business of deconstructing text is, is absolutely essential. It comes right out of the biblical tradition. I mean, you talk... Read the Sermon on the Mount if you want to. If you want to see it, uh, the, the world's first major deconstruction, or even the biblical prophets, they're in the business of deconstructing. So I should probably repair some of my comments about deconstruction because we have to deconstruct this text. We have to say to ourselves, "Wait a minute, uh, what's going on here?" What this text says is that Jephthah is to be honored because he kept his word to Yahweh. And there's a hint of that in the, in the Abraham story. It, it's different, of course, because he does, Abraham does not offer the sacrifice. But there's a hint of it, and I'll try to bring it out when we get to it. But this, Jephthah is seen as someone who is faithful to his sacrificial contract. And the, and the first time Jephthah takes a, a real hit for this is in Dante. And Dante sees that uh, this is an abomination. But you don't get that in the Bible. The letter of the Hebrews, which is a New Testament text, albeit a sacrificial one, not entirely sacrificial, but the letter of Hebrews, like the book of Revelations, is a, is a problematic text, I think. Uh, but the letter of Hebrews speaks of Jephthah in a positive way, as someone who was faithful. And we say, well, yes, he's faithful, but if faith means being a, a child of Abraham, was he really? If faith means being a child of Abraham, was Jephthah faithful? You see? So, there's that story. Well, what does the story say, though? The story says, that in this situation, human sacrifice was performed in direct uh, devotion to Yahweh. Okay, we have to, in other words, what I'm trying to do is I'm finding these little traces of something going on in the biblical tradition that, that tell us that what Abraham did on Mount Moriah was very profound and that it was not it did not take place isolated from historical and anthropological events but was central to them so I want to go to Jeremiah for a minute a couple of things from Jeremiah one from from the prophet Micah and then we'll go to to the story of Abraham again these are texts that have to be uh, unpacked a little bit Jeremiah in the second chapter of Jeremiah says, How dare you say, quote, I am not defiled, I have not run after the balls, B-A-A-L-S, the pagan Canaanite gods. How dare you say I am not defiled, I have not run after the balls. Look at your footprints in the valley and acknowledge what you have done. And the valley he's talking about is the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which I'll show you in the next passage I quote from him, which was, which was uh, the, or the valley of Topeth, 
which was where all of these pagan cults sprang up. Uh, the, I was trying to think the other day of what an, a modern analog would be because in, at the time of Jeremiah, to even say the valley, to say the valley was to conjure up immediately the valley of, of Ben-Hinnom or Topeth, which was to conjure up immediately this apostate uh, uh, cluster of apostate cults out there that occasionally engaged in human sacrifice. And so I was thinking the modern equivalent of this, it's, it's now past, it's, it's a piece of past history now, but a year and a half ago or, or so, uh, to say the word Waco, uh, you see, it conjures up the Branch Davidians and the craziness of their cult and so on. Well, that's what the word valley means in, in Jeremiah. And he says, look at your footprints in the valley. That is to say, and acknowledge what you have done. That is to say, uh, it was possible to go into, to drift into those cults and never to realize what had been done. To actually participate in sacrificial uh, events and not even realize that one had done so, which seems preposterous to us. But I wonder, I was thinking of Jeremiah the other day, I was thinking about how the, 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 um, you know, when we, when we poured all this money and military equipment uh, in, into the moral equivalent of the Founding Fathers in Central America, uh, and it seemed like the most marvelous thing to be doing, and then suddenly we have these people who go down there and find these mass graves. And it's like Jeremiah saying, look at your footprints in the valley and recognize what you have done. I mean, it's a contemporary political version of exactly the same kind of delusion that always surrounds the sacrificial episode. And so he's saying, you, you don't even realize what you've done. And then the next metaphor we have to appreciate as a metaphor having to do with human sacrifice. For Jeremiah, the high places, the valley of Ben-Hinnom, always means finally human sacrifice. So he uses the following metaphor, which we have to understand in terms of the most vicious, powerful form of the sacrificial reflex. He says, A frantic she-camel running in all directions bolts for the desert, snuffing the breeze in desire. Who can control her when she is in heat? Whoever looks for her will have no trouble. He will find her with her mate. Now, he's talking about the sacrificial impulse. In other words, there's a, I would say the way to understand this is that moment of crisis when everything, it's total undifferentiation. He says, she's running in all directions. And you think, you know, when people are running in all directions, it's right before they start running in one. That's the nature of the social phenomenon. It's the mimetic nature of a, a social breakdown. People running in all directions, and pretty soon they're running in one. It's suddenly a mob with a focus. It's, it's, a, it's an undifferentiated chaos, and then it's a mob with a focus. He says, uh, but it's like, a, it's like a camel in heat. This, this mob then moves towards its mate, which is its victim. The point has been made by anthropologists that sacrifice is the, is the social procreative act. 
It's the act that regenerates social solidarity and restores order and begins a new phase of cultural life. So at that level as well, this, this idea of, a, of an animal in heat as the metaphor for a, for a social breakdown leading to sacrifice is an appropriate one.